0: Let's turn once again our Bibles this afternoon to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, picking up where we left off this morning. We'll begin reading at verse 1 and read through verse 11, but our focus this afternoon will be on verses 5 through 11. Colossians 3, verse 1, this is God's holy word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and in all. Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his church. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I once heard of a, PCA pastor, who for many years had the privilege of serving as a military chaplain in the United States Army. And as you can imagine, this chaplain had many interactions, especially with, with young men who would meet with him to ask whether or not they too should consider registering for military service. Now, besides having the desire to serve their country, various reasons would often be given. There, there were some who desired to see the world. There were others who, who were very much drawn to the, the place and purpose that military service might afford them. But in order to help these young people really consider what joining the military could potentially mean, this military chaplain would typically begin by asking them the question, would you be willing to die for your country? You see, to answer that question sort of puts all the other questions into perspective. To join the military is potentially to to die for your country. And yet, despite the seriousness and the gravity of that question, this chaplain often found that young people were able to answer fairly readily. Well, yes, if need be, out of love for my country, I would be willing even to die for her sake. But if they responded that way, this chaplain would often ask them an additional follow-up question and say, you say that you are willing to die for your country. Well, that's good and well. But would you be willing to kill for your country? That, of course, is a more sobering question. Often, typically would give would-be soldiers greater pause. Would you be willing to kill? For your country. But as we direct our focus this afternoon to what Paul is saying to us here in verses 5 and following, we're confronted with similar kinds of questions, aren't we? Because here the apostle is urging us to kill, to, to kill that dimension of ourselves that is earthly. But we also recognize this afternoon that Paul, like me, is simply a messenger. He's an ambassador of the Lord Jesus, and so. As we come to verse 5 in our, of our text, it is in fact the Lord Jesus who comes to us. It's the Lord Jesus who comes to us in the preaching of his word. It's the Lord Jesus who asks you, do you love me enough to kill for me? Do you love me enough to kill for me? It's a sobering question, isn't it? Do you love your Savior more than you love your sin? If you had to to part with one or the other, which would it be? This congregation is really the question that, that undergirds the apostles' words here. If God put his son to death for you, then won't you put your sin to death for him? If God put his son to death for you, then won't you put your sin to death for him? Jesus, we know, has given us everything. As we heard this morning, Jesus has given us a new identity and a new destiny. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. As Article 26 of the Belgian Confession says, So beautifully, there is no one in all the world who who loves you more than Jesus Christ loves you. And then the article shows us the length that Christ is willing to go to, to express that love. He took upon himself the form of a man, the form of a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And now the question is set before you, to what degree do you love him? Do you love him enough to kill for him? Are you willing to part with your sins, even those sins that in your flesh you continue to hold so near and dear to your heart? Are you willing to kill those sins so that the entirety of your life might be offered up to God as a holy sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to Him? As I mentioned this morning, knowing whose you are as it now defines who you are, but who you are, Who you are ought to have a profound impact on the way you are, on what you love, on how you think, on what you do and what you say, and and on everything in between. This is what Paul is, is pressing upon us here. Having reminded his readers of their new identity and their new destiny, he now sets before them a new duty. In verses 5 and 8, Paul calls us to put to death and to, and to put away all the sins and vices that belong to the old man. For on account of those sins, what does Paul say? He says the wrath of God is coming. But to encourage us in this duty, Paul goes on to remind us that you and I have been brought into, we've been incorporated into a new humanity. Once again in verses 9 and 10, Paul anchors his readers in the grammar of the gospel. The imperative command of verses 5 and 8 are is grounded in the indicative realities of verses 9 and 10. They are made possible. These calls to put to death and to put away, that's made possible, says Paul, because you have put off the old self with its practices and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of its creator. And then in the third place, Paul reminds us that we have not only been incorporated into a new humanity, but we've also been brought into a new community. A new community where there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but a new community wherein Christ is all and in all. But in verse 5, Paul begins with our duty. Listen again to how he says it. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And notice how at the start of verse five also, as Paul urges us to do this, as Paul urges us to mortify our sin, to to put our sin to death, he doesn't do so with the law, but with the gospel. That's what the word therefore is there for. That word therefore, at the start of verse five Is so important because it directs us to read verses 5 through 11 in light of what Paul has just said in verses 1 through 4. Paul, you see, is grounding his exhortation to put our sin to death in the reality that you and I have already been risen with Christ and hidden with Christ in God. If it were not so, then living out Paul's words here would be utterly impossible. If Paul was calling us to fight sin in our own strength, then you and I would be sure to fail at every turn. As we confess in Lord's Day 52, we are so weak. We are so weak that we cannot stand on our own even for a moment. But as the rest of that Lord's Day tells us, God upholds us, doesn't he? God upholds us and makes us strong by his Spirit that we might not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but rather may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. As we read in Psalm 108, with God we shall do valiantly. He will put all our foes under our feet. This is what Paul is expressing here with the word therefore. The Christian duty to mortify sin is not an easy one. As all of us know all too well, putting sin to death It's hard. It's painful. And there are times and perhaps we are tempted to think that putting sin to death is almost impossible. And so we need to have this clear in our minds that Christian duty is never to be detached from the Christian's identity. As I said this morning, our status is the basis of our service and not the other way around. And so we have to understand here that that it's not as though Paul is suggesting that to find acceptance with God we must first get his act together. Paul's certainly not saying here that if you still have sexual sin in your life, then you must not be a real Christian. That's not what Paul's saying. And of course is one of Satan's evil devices, isn't it? To to point out your sin, to, to tell you of all the guilt within. And then to say if you were really a Christian, then you'd never commit that kind of a sin. Recognize that Paul is speaking here to Christians as he highlights in chapter one, verse two, Paul is speaking to the saints who are in Christ at Colossae. And what this means is that as you and I wage war with our sin, we do so from a position of victory and strength and not from a position of of despair and defeat. We do so from that position, as we heard this morning, as being seated with Christ in heavenly places. And so when Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, he's saying, You can do this. You can do this. And St. Augustine once said, God. God not only commands what he wills, but he, but he gives what he commands. As, as the Apostle Paul puts in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's the call. There's the, the imperative command. Work out your salvation. But then what does Paul add to that? He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There is the indicative, what God has done, what God does. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God is going to judge the world on account of these sins. Sexual sin pervades our culture. And Paul is reminding us here that God is not mocked. On account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. And while Paul is certainly not saying that those who belong to Christ need to fear the wrath of God, we don't need to fear the wrath of God any longer. What he is saying is that if God's wrath is going to destroy the world on account of these things, then how can you possibly think that these sins can't yet do you great harm? Paul, you see, wants us to see the seriousness of our sin. He wants us to see that sin is not something that we can afford to take lightly. Sin's not something we can afford to be indifferent towards. Not only because it's not acceptable in the sight of God, but also because it is so destructive to your communion with God. It's destructive to your fellowship with one another. Just as any patient of sound mind would not dare to ignore the presence of cancer in his body, Neither should the Christian dare to remain indifferent to sin and its destructive power. Sin is so serious, says Paul, that it must be rooted out and put to death. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, he says in Romans 8.13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It was the great Puritan pastor John Owen who once wrote in his book The Mortification of Sin that the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet make it their business all their days to mortify, to put to death the indwelling power of sin. And then he said, be always in the business of killing sin or sin will be in the business of killing you. And that's precisely what God's word teaches us this afternoon. Put to death Therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. According to the Apostle Paul, this pursuit to kill sin and whatever is earthly in us must begin in the earliest stages. We must mortify our sin, he's saying, from the inside out. We must kill it at the root, Paul is saying. And to illustrate this principle, he uses the sexual immorality as an example. What Paul says here, we need to recognize, applies to every kind of sin. But Paul zeroes in on sexual immorality as an example to show us how to, to put sin to death. Paul says we must begin with impurity. The, the little compromises that we oftentimes make in what we watch and what we listen to and, and in how we speak. Because impurity leads to Passion. Impurity begins to alter our affections, and when our sinful passions are inflamed, we begin to desire and seek after after that which God has said we cannot have. And when we do that, when we begin to covet that which God has said we may not have, that means we've placed that thing above God, and that, of course, is idolatry. So often, sin begins to is seemingly so small and insignificant at first. A passing glance leads to a wandering thought, a wandering thought leads to passing to sinful passions, and so on. And so Paul says you must identify sin at the earliest stages and put it to death before it bears its poisonous fruit. Sin, especially sexual sin, may promise you everything, but it delivers on nothing. It promises you joy, and satisfaction and fulfillment, but it delivers on nothing. It robs you of your joy. It, it'll disrupt your communion. It'll make you feel as though you're nothing more than a hypocrite and a fraud. And so Paul says we must put these sins to death. Be always in the business of killing sin, or sin will be in the business of killing you. The way our ESV Bibles translate Paul's words put to death is perhaps too euphemistic because it is the Greek language's way of saying in the strongest possible way, you must identify that thing that is trying to kill you and you need to kill it. Are we taking our sin seriously? Do we hate our sin? When... When temptation comes, do do you run away from sin as fast as you can, like, like Joseph did from Potiphar's wife? Are we giving no opportunity for the devil? When that thought enters your mind, a lustful thought, a, a greedy thought, a malicious thought, whatever it may be, do you take that thought captive by the Word of Christ and kill it? Are we taking our sins seriously? Or are you rather coddling your sin? Are you making room in your hearts to entertain sin, if only for a little while? If so, then let me ask you this afternoon, how is that working out for you? Are you experiencing the joy of the Christian life that way? Are you experiencing the assurance of your salvation that way as you coddle your sin? Do you feel like you're flourishing in the faith that way? Or is it rather quite exhausting and discouraging? I remind of another Puritan pastor who was once approached by one of his parishioners who, who came to him saying, Pastor, you know, there are all these, these sins in my life. They're like cobwebs, cobwebs of sin that I'm wrestling with. They keep entering my life. Pastor, what do you think I should do? And the pastor said, Cobwebs of sin in your life, you say. What then should you do? Kill the spider. Don't take light of it. Kill the spider. Beloved, do you really want to overcome sin in your life? If so, then you need to take the word of God seriously. How again did Jesus himself say to Matthew chapter 5? If your right eye causes you to sin, what then should you do? simply put a patch over it? No, he said, pluck it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Simply put a glove on it? He said, no, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you should lose one of your members and that your whole body should be thrown into hell. Jesus, of course, was not calling his disciples to self-mutilation, but speaking by way of hyperbole and metaphor, Jesus was calling his disciples to see the seriousness of their sin and to take drastic action in the way that they deal with their sin. We need to identify those things in our lives that are leading us astray, and we need to remove them. We need to cut off access to them We need to stop making excuses for our sins. As reminded in Articles 4 and 5 of the Fifth Head of the Canons of Dort, our ongoing sins, we confess, deserve the sentence of death. They grieve the Holy Spirit. They suspend the exercise of faith. They severely wound the conscience and cause us sometimes to lose the awareness of God's grace and favor. Isn't that what David expressed in the song we just sang? While I kept guilty silence, my strength was spent with grief. Thy hand was heavy on me, and my soul found no relief. This is what unconfessed and unmortified sin gets you. It robs you of your joy. It grieves your conscience. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It makes you feel as though the Lord is far from you. And if this is your experience this afternoon, then I urge on behalf of Christ to repent. Repent of your sins. Confess your sins. Bring your sin into the open. Don't be too proud to ask for help. As the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, bear one of those burdens in the Lord. He recognizes that we as Christians don't fight sin as lone rangers. Don't be too proud to confess your sins one to another, to seek help in mortifying those sins. Christ urges us this afternoon to confess our sins and to experience the joy of his forgiving grace. Isaiah thirty verse eighteen says that the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He is exalted to show mercy to you. And do we believe that this afternoon? Satan would have us to believe that when we've been living, living in sin, the last thing we should do is, is go to God with that sin. One minute, Satan is there as the great tempter, saying, you've earned this sin, just give it, it'll feel so good. And then the next minute, he is the same one pointing the finger, the great accuser, saying, you dare not go to God now. He'll want nothing to do with you. You're better off covering your sin and shame with fig leaves. But what does God say? How does God reveal Himself to us with regards to our ongoing struggles with sin? Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. When God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, when he says, my ways are higher than your ways, he's saying, I don't think the same way you think. When someone sins against you, your initial reaction is immediately to, to hold a grudge, to keep that person at an arm's distance. And sometimes we as believers think that's the way God deals with us. But God in Isaiah 55 is saying to his people, you have no comprehension of the magnitude of my mercy. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. Why? In order that he may have compassion on him and nor that he might abundantly pardon This is the God of the Bible as he reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ as David went on to sing in Psalm 32, but when I own my trespass, my sin hid not from thee. When I confess transgression, then thou forgavest me. This congregation is the joy of our salvation. We have a Savior who not only convicts us of our sin, but who also comforts us in the midst of our struggle against sin. He speaks to us with words like, therefore, he he assures us that we can do this. He comes to us with the precious promises of his word and he assures us, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. comes to us and he says when God sees you he sees me your life is hidden with me in God and if you're despairing in your struggle with sin Christ also says to you because I love you because you have been raised with me to newness of life because your life is hidden with me tomorrow doesn't have to be like yesterday and the sins of last week don't need to be the sins of this week And unlike the devil, Christ's fingers aren't crossed behind his back. Jesus isn't lying when he says, for example, in Titus 2, that grace is now available to you to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. The sins of last week don't need to be the sins of this week. For you have put off the old self with its practices. As Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, you have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer you who live but Christ who lives in you. You have put off the old self with its practices, says Paul, and you have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You've been incorporate into a new humanity. No longer are you, are you blinded by your sin. No longer are, are your ears too deaf to, or your hearts too hard to receive instruction from the Lord Jesus. But with new eyes and new ears and new hearts, you and I have been made able to walk in His ways. Isn't that we heard in our assurance of pardon this morning from Ezekiel 36? God has come. He's sprinkled us clean, washed us clean. He's put his spirit within us that we might walk in his commandments. Paul highlights this very thing when he says in these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Paul, you see, is orienting us to the reality that when you came to faith in Christ, God made a breach with your sin and he he set you on a new and level path. And this God did with with the promise of Philippians chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you would would bring it to completion on the day of Christ's coming. God's not going to abandon you in the process of your sanctification. He's not like a, a sculptor who begins to work on something halfway and then leaves it. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ's coming. He's made a breach with your sin. He's set you on a new path to walk in his commandments. Isn't that we confess in Lord's Day 44 that we have a small beginning of Christian obedience? It's a small beginning. We don't reach perfection in this life. It's a small beginning, but it's real. It's a real beginning. As one of the prophets says, I believe Zechariah, despise not the small things. Despise not the small things if they testify to God's grace in Christ. And so Paul is here describing a new humanity when he says, "In these you two, in these you two, once walked and you were living in them." He is he's appealing to the reality of the rescue. These sins at one time for the Colossians, these sins had been their whole world. These sins had been their their whole way of life. This is who they were and what they were. This is what they were known for. But Christ rescued them and he caused them to be born against that those sins and vices that used to define them didn't need to define them any longer. And this is why Paul says that now you must put these all away. Wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth and do not lie to one another. He's saying these things are not in accord with who you've been made to be. Like the list of sins in verse 5, so also the list of sins in verses 8 and 9 belong to the kingdom of darkness, and so they have to be done away with. Your anger, your wrath, your malice, your slander, your obscene talk needs to be rooted out and killed in service to God and one another. Those things belong to the old man, says Paul. But you have put on the new man. That's perhaps a better way of translating Paul's words in verses 9 and 10, rather than using the word self, which could perhaps lead us to think that there are two different persons inside of us. What Paul is seeking to press home here is the reality that those who have been raised to newness of life, no longer stand in solidarity with the old man, with Adam, but they stand in solidarity with the new man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam. When Adam fell into sin, anger, wrath, malice, slander filled his heart and the whole human race with him. And by nature, we stood in solidarity with him. We were part of Adam's team. We were part of the the rebel army of Adam. Arms raised, fists raised, Against the God of heaven. But Paul says, You've put off that man. You've put him off. He he died when Christ died. You were there with him. What Adam lost, Christ regained, where Adam failed, Christ prevailed, and through his resurrection, Jesus ushered us into a new humanity. That when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just Jesus who rose, but you rose with him. You were there with him. That's the reality of your union with Christ. You were there with him. When he rose, you rose. Already now, you have newness of life. This is the point that Paul is, is pressing home here. Your position in the old Adam has been spiritually destroyed and it's been replaced by the last Adam. And in him and through him, you're being made more and more like Him. As we're sanctified by the Spirit, as we are, we are more and more renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator and we're conformed into the image of our Savior, so that the more we, we mortify our sin, the more we, we begin to, to mirror our Savior. According to Paul, writes William Hendrickson, the believer's new nature resembles that of a growing plant. It is being constantly renewed by the Spirit and increases in vigor with a definite goal in mind, namely to make you holy as he is holy. You and I have been made to share in a new humanity. And hadn't been made to share in a new humanity, God has also brought us into a new community, which is the last thing we consider this afternoon. What again does Paul say in verse 11? Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but in this new community, Christ is all and in all. Here in verse 11, you see Paul is is working out the theology of verses 9 and 10 in terms of its implications for the church. When it comes to Christ's work in our lives, there are both individual as well as corporate dimensions to it. And one of the corporate implications, one of the corporate dimensions of our union with Christ is that whatever barriers continue to separate cultures and classes in our world today are, are torn down and toppled over by the gospel. It's a theme that, that Paul presses home throughout his letters. In Ephesians he says that, that Christ has toppled over that, that dividing wall of hostility, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, for in one spirit we were baptized into, into one body. In Galatians 3.28, he says, as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor a Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And the gospel note that Paul is sounding here in verse 11 is the fact that this Glorious, progressive transformation into the image of God recognizes no racial, religious, cultural, or social boundaries, but God's grace bridges all chasms. Therefore, writes Hendrickson, racial bigotry, chauvinism, and snobbery are all condemned here. And here the truth that before God all men are equal receives its best infallibly inspired expression. You see, what unites me to most of you is not the fact that most of us happen to have Dutch last names, but what unites us together is the transformative power of the gospel. What unites us together is the reality that God has been gracious to answer our Savior's high priestly prayer that we might be one as he and the Father are one. For Christ, says Paul, is all and in all. Christ as the all-sufficient Savior, Paul's saying, is all that matters. The very same Christ of Colossians 1 who is before all things and who, and who holds all things together also holds us together in the bonds of, of Christian faith and love. As one pastor has put it, there is a cosmic dimension to Christ's saving work that goes beyond the mere salvation of one group of people for the scope of his saving work is able to reach into every nook and cranny of our diverse race, bringing people from every conceivable background into the fellowship of, into the fellowship of his family. This is the glorious picture that we find in Revelation 7. It isn't a great multitude that no one can number, comprising peoples of every tribe, tongue, and nation standing before the throne and before the Lamb? And this is the vision that we need to keep before our own eyes as we take heed of the apostles' instruction as we put to death and put away what is earthly in us we need to do so with this glorious vision before our eyes that a day is coming when we ourselves with all God's people everywhere shall stand before that throne in, in white robes when we'll cry out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb He who testifies to all these things says, surely I am coming soon. And so we ought to pray, even so, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you and again we pray that your spirit would apply the word that has been preached to our hearts. Lord, give us grace to put our sin to death to put away and to put to death whatever is earthly in us. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to live in light of who we really are, new creations, and that our lives would be consistent with our new identity in the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for uniting us together in the bonds of Christian faith and love, for bringing us into this new community, this great support system whereby we acknowledge together the wonder of what Christ has done for us. Forgive us, Lord, when we have lived in our sin. Grant us the grace of repentance and give us eyes to see that great and awesome day that is ahead of us when we, with all your people, stand before the throne and before the Lamb. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake.